What's up, everybody? We have got UFC Fight Night Mexico this weekend, and this is a banger of a card. I'm really, really excited for whenever the UFC is out of the apex these days, it is almost guaranteed to be an awesome card. And that's what we have on paper this week. Two five-round fights, the main event between Brandon Royval and Brandon Moreno, which is a rematch. That's our main event. And then the co-main event, we have Yaya Rodriguez against Brian Ortega, another rematch. And actually, both of these fights kind of marred by arm injuries the first time we saw these fighters take each other on. So we'll be talking about that in a second. If you guys could do me a favor first, do me a favor, like the video, subscribe to the YouTube channel. If you have any questions or comments for myself, let me know below in the comment section. If you want to sign up for our MMA package at Stochastic.com, you get access to our contest generator and our Sims tool, which will be very, very profitable this year in MMA. I have had... All but two cards that I finished top two in the $3, 150 max GPP over on DraftKings. Wouldn't have been able to do it without our Sims tool, which I'm going to be showing on screen as we break everything down. Then also, if you sign up for a Stochastic MMA badge, you get access to our Discord channel. And I'm always in there sweating out the MMA slate and also answering questions leading up to the card. But let's get into it today. Starting with the main event, Brandon Moreno taking on Brandon Roy Val. And uh, right off the bat, we are actually going to be talking about the fighter that I have the most exposure to on the card, and that is going to be Brandon Moreno in the main event. He is in about 70% of my lineups, which uh, is a number that at first glance I don't really feel all that great about, only because that's the amount of exposure I had to Alexander Volkanovsky last week. And I was having a great slate up until Ilya Teporia finished Volkanovsky, so I was on the, main, uh, the uh, wrong side of the main event last week. But this week, uh, hoping to be on the right side with Brandon Moreno. And this is a fight that we've already seen happen. And uh, like I mentioned, both the main event and the co-main event kind of rematching for odd reasons, because in both those fights, it were fights that ended in the first round because of arm injuries. When Brandon Moreno fought against Brandon Roy Val, what ended up happening was Brandon Roy Val ended up injuring his shoulder. It was a reoccurring shoulder injury for him. I'll pull up the stats for it here. And what ended up happening was Brandon Moreno had landed a couple of takedowns. Here it is. So Brandon Moreno landed a couple of takedowns in the first round. He was largely controlling the action. And then right at the end of the first round, it looked like Brandon Royval dislocated his shoulder. He starts screaming out in pain. Brandon Moreno lands some ground and pound. Referee stops in and uh, stops the fight there. But if you look at the overall stats from the fight, you know, I've seen people say the, the fight was a fluke and that Brandon Royval lost because of the injury, which... I mean, technically true, he lost because of the injury. But before the injury occurred, we saw Brandon Moreno outlanded Brandon Royval 53 to 24 on total strikes. Brandon Moreno also landed two takedowns, and he had three minutes of control time in the first round of that fight. So it was largely dominated by Brandon Moreno. And Royval's a really fun fighter. The problem with him is all offense and no defense. And he's not really a great minutes winner. Despite all of the output he puts out there, he's generally dependent on finishes to win his fights. And if he doesn't get those early finishes, he typically ends up losing. And Brandon Moreno is not somebody who we've ever seen get finished in the UFC. So I don't expect it to happen now. Brandon Moreno, sure, he has racked up some mileage, but he's still only 32 years old. That's not massively old at the bantamweight division. So uh, Brandon Moreno, I'm going to pick him to win by a late finish in this fight. And uh, as we saw before, he's my most rostered fighter on the entire card right now. Uh, Brandon Royval, Brandon Moreno, whoever wins this fight, I expect to score extremely well. So I'm going to be all in on this fight. My current exposures, like I said, way more geared towards the Moreno side, but I have 70.7% of Moreno and then 29.3% Royval on the other side. So lots of exposure to me in the main event and same in the co-main event where I currently have as my second most rostered fighter on the card, Yair Rodriguez, and then a Brian Ortega 
also in 37% of my life. So another fight that I'm all in on, but leaning more towards the Yair Rodriguez side. And a lot of it just has to do with, I don't know what to expect from Brian Ortega. He's very talented. And the last time we saw Ortega coming off a long layoff, he had arguably the best performance of his career against the Korean zombie. And now a lot of you might be thinking of the zombie as a fairly washed fighter, which he's retired. That was definitely true at the tail end of his career. But Ortega still fought a very, very good version of Korean Zombie and looked extremely good in that fight. The problem overall, though, with Brian Ortega now, it's the long layoffs, it's the injuries, the inactivity, just all of that kind of stuff leads me to really feel more confident in the Yair Rodriguez side, even though on paper, I don't think this is a terrible matchup for Brian Ortega, who only needs one takedown to ultimately potentially win the fight because he's such an elite submission grappler and there's only a 59% takedown defense on the Yair Rodriguez side. If you look at Rodriguez's recent fights, taken down seven times by Volk. He was taken down by Josh Emmett. Brian Ortega did take him down before Brian Ortega. Talking about his arm injury, same deal. Hurts his shoulder fight, isn't able to continue past the first round. The difference between the Rodriguez-Ortega fight and the Moreno-Royval fight, the Ortega-Rodriguez fight was much more competitive prior to the injury than the Moreno-Royval fight was. But still, we saw Ortega land a takedown, was able to get some control time, then ends up hurting his arm, isn't able to continue the fight. But anyway, he did land a takedown on Yair Rodriguez prior to hurting his arm. Max Holloway landed three takedowns on Yair Rodriguez. Uh, Jeremy Stevens landed three takedowns. So if Brian Ortega is able to get a takedown, I definitely think that he's live to win the fight. Like I said, it's just hard to trust him. He hasn't fought in nearly two years since we saw him fight against Yaya Rodriguez last, he had the shoulder surgery that he had to undergo. So I don't know what version of Brian Ortega we're going to get. That's what gives me a little bit more confidence in the Yaya Rodriguez side, who is going to have a massive advantage on the feet. But either way, five-round fight, it is a striker versus grappler matchup, which almost always score well on DraftKings. So it is another fight that I'm all in on. Another fight, lots of exposure to just to bring it back up. 62.7% of my lineups have Yair Rodriguez, 37.3% of Brian Ortega, which means I am overweight to both sides of the fight. We've got Ortega project for 27.5% ownership. Yair Rodriguez projected for 40% ownership in our projections. Let's go ahead and look at the next fights. And I mean, look, the first two fights I'm I'm all in on, on the two five-round fights, which is going to mean that I don't have quite as much exposure to some of the other fights to talk about as I might on some other cards. But Daniel Zellhuber taking on Francisco Prado. And uh, Prado's fairly dangerous in the first round, round and a half of fights. He doesn't have a massive amount of experience. He's very, very young and green is Prado. His UFC debut came against Jamie Malarkey. And it was a fight that he ended up losing. Uh, it was a fight that was expected to be action-packed, but ended up being a little bit ho-hum past the first round. Jamie Lark uh, was able to land a few takedowns. And then we saw a follow-up by Francisco Prado against Atman Zaitar, and he was able to knock him out with a lot of output in the first round. 38 significant strikes landed by Prado in that fight before he ended up getting the finish. As far as Daniel Zellhuber goes, he was somebody I was really high on coming into the UFC. And then his UFC debut, absolute stinker against Trey Ogden. So Daniel Zellhuber looked really good on the Contender Series, which happens a lot. How frequently do we see fighters look really good on the Contender Series, make their UFC debuts as big favorites, and kind of shit the bed? That's what happened in this fight. Zellhuber only lands 52 significant strikes against Trey Ogden, not a lot of output, not a lot happened in that fight. He ends up losing a decision, and then I'm kind of off of Daniel Zellhuber, but he bounced back with a couple of really good performances against Lando Venata, as well as Chris Joe's Yagos, and now... I feel more so that we're getting the version of Daniel Zellhuber who did look like a good prospect on the Contender Series. The problem with Zellhuber as a payup option on this slate, and he's currently in, I think it was about 20% of my lineups. Where's Zellhuber? 
I have him in, yeah, 22% of my lineups. So I'm getting some exposure to him, but he's not really a priority for me because we have those two five-round fights, and I'm liking the favorites in each of those spots. It kind of makes it difficult for me to pay up for another guy around that price range in Daniel Zellhuber. So I pick him to win. I think he wins by decision in this spot, but I'm going to prefer some other fighters in that price range as opposed to him. Next fight, Rahul Rosas Jr. against Ricky Turkios. And if I'm going to pay up for one guy in the 9K range and maybe go a little bit more expensive than the five-round fights in Yair Rodriguez and Brandon Moreno, I think Rahul Rosas Jr. is the best guy to look at. The reason is the matchup that he has against Ricky Turcios, who so far in the UFC has only been showing a 45% takedown defense, and we know that is what Rosas does. He lands 3.57 takedowns per 15 minutes. He's a very strong grappler. He is able to hold a lot of control time. We've seen in some of his fights. Let's see, where's the one against Jay Perrin? Yeah, so prior to getting the finish, which came... Two minutes and 44 seconds into the first round, we saw two minutes and 12 seconds of control time out of Rosas. So basically the entirety of that fight, it was with with Rosas in top control time. And I think we could see more of the same in this spot against Turkios, who has been super inconsistent and mostly bad. If we look at what we've seen out of Tercios from this point in his career, he was taken down seven times by Kevin Natividad, and that was a split decision, which I thought Natividad should have won. He also landed a knockdown in that fight. And then we saw Ricky Tercios look terrible against Eamon Zahabi, a fight where he just kind of stood about eight feet away from him, shadow box, didn't really land anything, and then Zahabi just kind of won because he did something whereas Tercios did next to nothing. So I really think that if Rosas comes in with his normal game plan of just forward pressure, looking to land takedowns, I think he should get them pretty easily, get himself a bunch of top control time, and likely in that scenario probably scores relatively well on DraftKings. So overall, my favorite payup option above that 9K range, it is going to be Hollow Rosas Jr. who I'm picking to win by submission. He's going to have a lot of good submission opportunities considering how good of a grappler he is and then also the poor takedown defense of Ricky Tercios. Uh, this is a fight that I don't think really warrants that much discussion. Yasmin Yoregi taking on Sam Hughes. And here's here's the problem with Yoregi. She is a very good fighter overall, in my opinion. She is able to... We haven't seen her land takedowns, but I've seen her do it outside of the UFC. And also her takedown defense is held up. 100% takedown defense. She lands 6.26 significant strikes per minute, only absorbs 487 the problem, though, is she's so expensive. She's the biggest favorite on the card, hence making her the most expensive fighter on DraftKings. And there's just other spots I want to prioritize on this card. I very, very strongly favor Waragi to win. I don't really give Hughes much of a chance. She's not somebody I'm interested in punting with in DFS. But the problem here is just the price point on Haregi has her in yeah only 4.7% of my lineups. I did end up with Sam Hughes in a few of my lineups using the Sims here, but... Uh, that's something where if I'm making a manual adjustment, which I always do make prior to lock, I'm just going to take her out of my player pool entirely to get to none of her. She's just not somebody who I think is really worth rostering on this card. When I don't give her a realistic chance to win. And then as far as her goes, she's just too expensive for me with limited upside. So I'm going to be looking elsewhere if I'm going to spend up on this slate. Moving on, we have... Manuel Torres against Chris Duncan. This fight is nearly minus 1,000 to finish inside the distance. It is a very, very strong fight to target. Most of the field looks like they're going to be on Manuel Torres. If I go ahead here and sort by our projected ownership, Torres is projected for 45.5% ownership. The only fighter we have projected for more ownership right now is Brandon Moreno. But 
when it comes to Manuel Torres, you could see why people are getting there because he is just a hellacious finisher. He had a crazy elbow finish against uh, Nicholas Mota in his last fight. And let's see, how, how long did that fight even last? That fight lasted a minute and 50 seconds. We've now seen three knockouts for Manuel Torres in the octagon. Contender series fight. Knockout in two minutes and 10 seconds. UFC debut against an aging Frank Camacho. This is the best win of Torres' career on paper against Frank Camacho. He used to be a really well-rounded, respected UFC vet, but this was an older version of him. Still, Manuel Torres knocks him out in three and a half minutes. And then the fight against Nicholas Moto, where Manuel Torres was able to land a knockout in less than two minutes in that fight. And that's what Torres does. He brings a lot of pressure. He hits extremely hard. And he's very live to win the fight in that kind of fashion against Tris Duncan. Here's the deal, though. If there is not an early finish by Manuel Torres, and if Chris Duncan's potentially able to land takedowns, I think Chris Duncan probably either wins by decision or maybe Manuel Torres starts to get tired since he's not used to fighting extended fights. And then we could see Chris Duncan finish Torres in potentially the second or third round. And on top of that, Chris Duncan, who used to be a fighter who was just kind of going out and looking to brawl with guys. I mean, we saw in his contender series fight, for instance, against Charlie Campbell. I know that Charlie Campbell wasn't credited with a knockdown in this fight, but he or Chris Duncan bad early in that fight. And these guys just stood and traded for a minute and a half or so until Charlie Campbell wilted and ended up getting knocked out in that spot. But because of some of the durability issues we've seen from Chris Duncan, a couple of things here. Number one, he's very live to get knocked out by Manuel Torres, but also we've seen him with a little bit more of a safe game plan in some of his recent fights. He's looked to wrestle, look for control time, landed five takedowns against Omar Morales, landed two takedowns against Yanal Ashmuz. And I do think that is the most sensible game plan for Chris Duncan. So whoever wins this fight, whether it's Manuel Torres early or if it's Chris Duncan in the second or third round, potentially a decision, I don't think that's the most likely outcome. I think this is a fight that is very close. The winner should score extremely well. And this is why I like the Duncan side of the fight. And right now I have Chris Duncan in 32.7% of my lineups, Manuel Torres in 42%. But that does have me overweight to Chris Duncan, slightly underweight to Manuel Torres. I actually wouldn't mind manipulating my ownership a little bit to up my exposure to Chris Duncan just for leverage purposes, because this is a fight that I view as being a coin flip type fight where the winner is going to score extremely well. So I would prefer to get on to the Chris Duncan side a little bit more just because he has about half the projected ownership of Manuel Torres. I think it's one of the more reasonable spots to get yourself some leverage for this UFC Mexico card. Next fight here, we've got Christian Quinones against Haoni Barcelos. And I used to be very, very high on Barcelos. After his fight against Khalid Taha, where was that? Yeah, so this was way back in 2020. So we're talking about four years ago, he fought Taha and Barcelos looked really good in that fight. And he was an older bantamweight and I was really hoping that the UFC would try to get him some tougher opponents that we could maybe see him get into the title picture. And I've really think prime Barcelos could have been a title contender in the bantamweight division. The problem now though, is he's right around 37 years old and he's definitely starting to look like he's slowing down, which happens when you're at an elevated age in the bantamweight division and his durability starting to go too. He didn't get finished by Kyler Phillips, but he did get knocked down. He got brutally KO'd by Umar Nurmagomedov in the first round of their matchup. And, while there is no shame in getting finished by Umar Nurmagomedov, he's arguably the best overall fighter in the bantamweight division, even though he isn't the champion. The problem is you just start to get concerned about the durability of Barcelos, who is also just totally melted by pressure by Victor Henry in their fight. Henry landed 181 significant strikes. That was a very bad look for Barcelos. And now I'm just at a point where I really question what the age is doing to Barcelos' durability. And Christian Quinones, it is one of the easier matchups Barcelos has had in quite some time, but... 
Quinones keeps a pretty high pace. He lands north of five significant strikes per minute. He has good takedown defense, 85% on paper. So I think he has the ability to keep this fight standing. Barcelos is the better overall fighter. But for DFS purposes, I prefer the Christian Quinones side because he's cheaper. So he's uh, got a punt price point on a slate where I don't really love that many cheap fighters. And I do think there's potential that Barcelos just kind of passed it isn't the fighter he once was. So durability, a big concern for me when it comes to Barcelos. And some that in hindsight, I kind of wish I would have waited a little bit more in the Volkanovski fight. I wish I would have been a little bit tighter exposure and maybe gone 50-50 on the main event last week as opposed to being 70-30 in favor of Volkanovski because Volkanovski won the first round. He won most of the second round, but then he got knocked out in the second. I wouldn't be surprised if something similar happens to Barcelos this week. So a close fight. I'm going to pick Quinones to win. I do think he ends up finishing Barcelos and uh, probably the end of the uh, UFC run potentially for Haoni Barcelos if he gets finished once again. So uh, pretty interesting tournament play, in my opinion, in Christian Quinones. Jesus Aguilar taking on uh, Matush Mendonca. And when it comes to Mendonca, he was somebody who was really rated highly coming off the Contender Series, which, uh, surprise, surprise, happens all the time. Looked great. In his contender series win, got a finish. Let's see, what was it? Yeah, in, inside of a minute, 48 seconds, also landed two knockdowns. So then they give him just a ridiculously difficult UFC debut against Javid Basharat, who was really able to control him for most of the fight. Three takedowns. How much control time did he have in that? Yeah, five minutes. Not Yeah, so about five and a half minutes of control time for Basharat in that fight. And if you look at Jesus Aguilar, who is coming off his first ever career KO against Shannon Ross, he's not somebody who's really known as a strikeout. He's known as a wrestler, not even known as a grappler, just a wrestler who's able to hold top control time. If you look at Jesus Aguilar, yes, so his last fight, no takedowns landed because he he ended up knocking out Shannon Ross with the first punch pretty much the threw of the entire fight. Fight before that, we saw Jesus Aguilar go against Tetsuro Tire, which is just a brutally difficult matchup. And then we did see him implement his wrestling game a little bit more on the contender series where he landed three takedowns. So I do think that Mendoza is the overall better fighter in this matchup. But considering where he's priced and where Aguilar is priced, and the fact that if Aguilar wins, I do expect it to come with wrestling and him holding some top control time, I lean more towards the Aguilar side. Not a fight I have a mass amount of interest in. Let's see, what's my current exposures? Yeah, I have Aguilar right now in 24% of lineups. I've got Mendonca in 14.7% of lineups. So a little bit of exposure to the Aguilar side, a little bit overweight to the field on him. He's my preferred side of the fight. I'm going to pick Mendonca to win, but just because of the pricing and how Aguilar would win if he does end up winning the fight, coming with the wrestling, I think he's a little bit more fantasy upside relative to his price tag, making him my preferred side of the fight. Edgar Chárez taking on Daniel Lacerda, and this is the millionth time the UFC has tried to make this fight. There's been illness issues. There's been issues with bad refing where we had the fight. It was, yeah, here in September. So the Grasso-Shevchenko card, this fight was, Edgar Chárez was like 30 seconds away from winning the fight. He had Lacerda in a guillotine up against the cage. I can't remember who the referee was. Let's see, does it say here the ref was? Yeah, it was Chris Tanyoni, who's done this numerous times in his career. Tanyoni thought that Lacerda was going unconscious, but he actually wasn't. So we saw Tanyoni step in, stops the fight, ends up being a bad stoppage. It ends up getting ruled to no contest, but the fight was just about to be done anyway. 
if Tanyoni didn't step in, we were like 20, 30 seconds away from Lacerda tapping or just going out unconscious. So we saw this fight play out. Lacerda did have some wrestling success in the early going, landed a takedown, held a minute of control time. But this is a guy who's got like four minutes of cardio. And what we see from his fights, either he typically wins in the first few minutes or potentially loses, hyper-aggressed from the first few minutes. But he doesn't get his opponent out of there quickly and he doesn't get finished himself. He just kind of quits and doesn't have the cardio to continue. So Edgar Chara, I think, is one of the better fighters to target on this entire slate. We have to make sure the fight happens. Because at weigh-ins, and one of the reasons I ended up recording this video later than I normally would is because everything looks well and good until Lacerda steps on the scale, misses weight by a couple of pounds. Uh, not these guys again. This is going to be like the, the fourth time there's an issue that caused the fight to get canceled because we saw Lacerda miss weight. So then what happens? Charis steps on the scale. He weighs in at 131 pounds for a 125-pound fight. So the fight is definitely up in the air whether it's going to happen or not as of the time that I'm recording this. I waited as long as I could to get the video, but eventually I just had to do it before my basketball show today. And so at the time, I don't really know whether the fight is or isn't going to happen. If it does, I think it's a really good one to target just because of the way that we see Lacerda fight. He's either going to get a quick finish, which I don't think is all that likely in this matchup considering how we've already seen it played out. If he doesn't, then I think Edgar Chárez could potentially be somebody who ends up putting up a pretty big DraftKings score with a late first round or second round finish. We don't have Chárez projected for all that much ownership, but I do expect that to update later. And so right now I'm getting myself to a lot of exposure to Chárez, but the main reason is because in our current ownership projections, we only have them at 11%, but our data always gets updated as we get closer to the slate starting. And if Chárez ends up being like, 25, 30% owned, something like that by tomorrow, then his ownership is going to come down for me in the Sims. But right now at 11%, he does look like a fighter who's fairly under-owned. We'll see what the ownership projection ended up looking like tomorrow. I expect Char is going to end up becoming more popular, assuming the fight happens. If not, then the fight comes out of my player pool entirely, obviously. Hopefully it happens. I want the, I want to put an end to this stupid chapter. I, I don't need to see like Charez Lacerda 6 with them being, you know, 0-0-1 in their career against each other because the fight just never ends up happening. Claudio Puelles against Faraz Zayim. This is a fight I don't really like for DFS purposes for this reason. I strongly favor Zayim to win. I think it's a really good matchup for him. He's 75% career takedown defense. But if Zayim wins, he didn't do anything in his fights. He lands 2.82 significant strikes per minute, absorbs 2.01, so he's very difficult to hit. He's not very high output in his own right. And then you got Claudio Puelles on the other side, who's a really good submission grappler, but he has no stand-up game whatsoever. He only lands 1.82 takedown, uh, 1.82 significant strikes per minute, absorbs 2.93. And just coming off a terrible performance against Dan Hooker, where Puelles was not able to land takedowns, and then he was just target practice for Dan Hooker. So Hooker ends up knocking him out in the second round with a body kick, and it was a fight where, yeah, Puelles landed like I mean, five significant strikes for the entire fight. So here's the problem you run into with Claudio Puelles. If he gets himself a third-round submission, he might only land like eight significant strikes and put up almost no fantasy points. I think he's the better fantasy option of the two between him and Zion, just because Zion does absolutely nothing in his wins. But since I'm favoring Zion to win, I'm picking him to win. It's a fight that I'm not going to have very much exposure to. Let's see, what is the current numbers I have? I've got, yeah, Zion right now in 11% of my lineups. And then I've got Puelles in 18%. It's a fight I'm not going to be very exposed to. Few fights left to talk about. Next one is uh, Ronaldo Rodriguez against Denise Bondar. And when it comes to Bondar versus Rodriguez, I have to favor the Bondar side of the fight just because of the output difference here. 
Rodriguez, a fighter, was only landing 1.27 significant strikes per minute. Bondar lands 4.89, and that's just problematic. If you're a fighter who has that low of output like Rodriguez does, it's just hard to win very many minutes. We saw his, uh, not his UFC debut, but fought on the contender series against Jerome Rivera, who's also a fighter I don't really hold in all that high of regard. And Rivera loses a decision because he didn't do anything. He landed two takedowns, 19 significant strikes. And that's going to be a problem with Rodriguez fighting at the UFC level. I don't think he has enough output to be a minutes winner. And then as far as Bondar goes, he's not somebody I rate all that highly, but I have to pick him to win just based on the output here. It's an okay fight to target because of where it's priced on DraftKings in the mid-range. And there aren't that many cheap fighters that are really like on the slate, but this is a fight that I don't really think is all that necessary. If you guys are building yourselves, you know, one, two, three lineups, don't even consider this fight. Not necessary. I'll be playing some of it in large field tournaments, but not all that much and not any real, any real significant lean for me. I have, I've got Rodriguez in 20% of lineups right now. I've got Bondar in 23% of lineups, but yeah, not a, not a fight that I think is necessary to get into your lineups for this weekend. Victor Altamirano taking on Felipe Dos Santos. I'm actually fairly high on Dos Santos. He got a ridiculously difficult assignment for his UFC debut on short notice. The UFC gives him Manel Kopp, who's uh, potentially a future champion at the division. If you look at Manel Kopp in his recent fights, uh, a KO win over Oday Osborne. He had a KO win in the first round against Jalga Zhumagolov. He fought uh, to a decision against David Dvorak that he ended up winning. And then his last fight against uh, Felipe Dos Santos, we saw a win for Kopp. And honestly, uh, we saw Dos Santos put a bid, a better fight up against Kopp than Dvorak, than Jumagulov, than Ode Osborne did. And another thing, too, about uh, Felipe Dos Santos, you just don't fuck with these Brazilian fighters that show up with their hair dyed, like the, the blondish white color. Every single time we see that on one of these Brazilian fighters, they come out here to kick asses. And that was what Felipe Dos Santos did against Manel Kopp. Even though he didn't win the fight, he was way more live than the betting odds indicated. He had a way better chance to win that fight in hindsight than any of us gave him. And he was a dog. He came to fight. He was marching forward. It didn't matter how hard he got hit by Manel Kopp. He kept moving forward. He was throwing output. And that's where I think that he is going to be a problem in this division, especially as he gets more experience. He is super young. So he is, what, 23 years old, I believe. Uh, yeah, Felipe Dos Santos. Born uh, September 11th, uh, yeah, 2000. So 23 years old, Felipe Dos Santos. In a matchup against Manel Kopp, and Kopp typically mutes the offense of his opponents. Still, Dos Santos landed 6.6 significant strikes per minute. We have seen him outside of the UFC also land takedowns. He wasn't able to do that in the fight against Manel Kopp, but I mean, that's a very, very high-level opponent that he fought in Kopp. Massive step-down in competition for him against Victor Altamirano. The only issue I have with Felipe Dos Santos in this spot is that there's other fighters priced around him, like Gallo Rodriguez and Brandon Moreno, I prefer to him. But still, Dos Santos is somebody who I have some exposure to. He's in 22% of my lineups. He's not a bad contrarian play. We only have him project for 11% ownership. So I like getting to him. Just hard for me to really make him like a core piece of my lineups because of where he's priced. Uh, Victor Altamirano, not somebody I really like getting to. Let's see how many fights we've got. Uh, yeah, just one fight left to talk about. Eric Silva against Mohamed Naimov. And another fight that I'm not going to have all that much interest in for DraftKings purposes. I'm picking Naimov to win. He's coming off a very bizarre couple of fights in a row. So he makes his UFC debut against Jamie Malarkey, fighting on short notice. After we saw him fight in the Contender Series, he took on Colin Anglin and honestly looked terrible in that fight. There was no takedown defense Naimov showed. He didn't really show much output on the feet. So when he takes the fight against Jamie Malarkey on short notice, I just expected Malarkey to run through Naimov 
And that's what happened in the early going. Malarkey was a massive favorite on that card. I think he finished like somewhere around minus 450 favor or something like that. Malarkey dominates the first round. He's looking really good in the second round. Then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, Naimov KOs him. So I'm like, like, all right, well, Naimov has power to finish Jamie Malarkey. That's not something that's all that easy to do. But then his next UFC fight comes against Nathaniel Wood, a big step up in competition for Naimov. So I'm on Nathaniel Wood in that spot thinking like, all right, we saw Naimov look bad against Colin Englund in the Contender Series. We saw him look bad until he finished Jamie Malarkey. And now he's fighting a really, really talented fighter, Nathaniel Wood. And Neymar looked great in that fight. It was the best he had ever looked, but the fight was a little bit more. There was, there was groin strikes. There was eye pokes. There was fence grabs, which definitely tilted things in the favor of Neymar because he was committing foul after foul. The referee never stepped in, never gave him a warning or anything like that. So Neymar won, but it was definitely a little bit tainted by all the fouls that went on. And now he's fighting Eric Silva, who, based on the age of Silva at this weight class, right? Silva is 36 years old, about to be turning 37. That's not something that I think is all that great at 145 pounds. Neymar appears to be improving. The problem also, though, is just the price point on Neymar. I think the betting line is a little bit too wide. And then also I have to consider that Neymar is somebody who just has had a lot of odd appearances in the octagon to this point. So considering the price tag on Neymar, it's going to be difficult for me to get there. If I had to play a side for DraftKings purposes, I would lean a little bit more towards Silva. But that's primarily because Neymar has just been inconsistent in his performances. Silva's super cheap. But I'm picking Neymar to win, so not a fight that I'm going to have really all that much interest in. Uh, one final look here. I'll just pull up on screen some of my ownerships here for my most rostered fighters at the moment on DraftKings. And if you guys want to sign up for the Sims tool, I build my lineups in this with the contest generator. Then I simulate the slate in the Sims tool. And then when there's fighters I want to adjust a little bit, I use the ROI boost function to boost up fighters I want a little bit more of, boost down the ones. What's also really helpful is this enables me to build lineups with the fighters I like. Well, then also the contest generator telling me which lineups are expected to be duped a little bit more heavily so I could get myself to a little bit more of unique lineups. So it helps me with my process. If you guys want to sign up for it and get access to not only these tools, but also our Discord channel, sign up using the link below. Other than that, guys, I'm really excited for this card. I hope you are too. It should be a banger. So enjoy the fights. Good luck. See you back here next week.